You're listening to the pulpit ministry of North Life Baptist Church with Pastor Harley Snowd. At North Life Baptist Church, our mission is to encourage each person to take the steps of loving God, growing together, and serving others. If you would like more information about our church, please visit our website at www.northlife.church. Now, stay tuned for today's message. Well, take your Bibles this morning and turn to Hebrews chapter 11 today. Hebrews chapter 11. And uh, as you're turning there, uh, many of you know that we were in the UK the last uh, week and a half or so, enjoyed some time with our brother who serves as a missionary there. And I was just thinking several of the songs that we sang today, um, the, uh, in England they were celebrating the Queen's Jubilee, the longest tenured monarch in England's history, 70 years. And uh, I was just thinking about some of the aspects of the lyrics we just sang today, She's been ruling for 70 years, and that was both celebratory, but also a bit somber. I think as folks sent, she wasn't able to make some of the appearances that they were hoping she would. Aren't you thankful for the etern- eternality of our king, um, and that he doesn't fade or falter, and the most, you know, all of the props and all of the pomp and circumstance that often we throw at human rulers, they all eventually fade and falter, but our God does not. And I hope that you rejoice in that today. And then I would just say this with the last song. Whether we recognize it and own it or not, we choose what our eyes look at. And I just want to encourage you, um, a lot of saints in other generations had figured out how to not let that which was around them be where their eyes were primarily focused. Yeah, they had a heart for the lost and they weren't living on, you know, with their head in the sand, but their eyes were locked in upon Jesus Christ. And brethren, that's what we need a renewal of in our day. Uh, If we really love and we really trust Jesus, I think he deserves more of our eye time, more of our focus. And uh, we talk about everything, don't we? The things we focus on are the things we talk about. And and I just don't hear as much of about Jesus, how glorious and grace-filled and and powerful he is. So I hope that you'll do your best in the days ahead to grow in that as I'm trying to do as well. I'm a bit sleep-deprived or jet-lagged today. Um, in fact, I came up ready to preach today, and I forgot my Bible. And uh, some of the guys were joking me about that to go back and get that. We'll probably need that today, I think, uh, if church is still like it was when I left. I don't know what Pastor Dave did last week, but, but I used the Bible, okay? Not all these funny stories about his kids and things. No, I'm just kidding. But I uh, appreciate you being back today being faithful last week as well. Hebrews chapter 11, we're going to pick up in verse 23, and the next uh, gentleman in our list of the hall of faith is we're talking about epic faith, life that is lived with significance just because that life was willing to trust God, and uh, hopefully this series has been inspiring you uh, as you studied Joseph last week, and I trust that as we continue our series, God will work. But let's pick up in verse 23. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hid three months of his parents. So it's a reference to his parents' faith. Um, because, hid three months of his parents because they saw he was a proper child. We'll define that in just a moment. And they were not afraid of the king's commandment. By faith, Moses, their son, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season steeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Through faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he that destroyed the firstborn should touch them. 
And then lastly, verse 29, by faith they, Moses and those following him, passed through the Red Sea as by dry land, which the Egyptians are saying to do or drown. So we'll look at today this aspect of our faith and our relationship with God as we look at the one named Moses. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word today. Thank you for the privilege to be back where you have us, where you've sovereignly chosen for us to fellowship and to worship and to serve you with these dear folks. Thank you for those in the room and those at home under the weather, those traveling as well that may be tuning in, that God, you would meet with us as we meet uh, around your word, as we place ourselves under it, its authority, its, its, its importance, and Lord, not just to be stirred, but to be changed, to be more like your son. Father, I pray today as we consider Moses, Lord, a, a, a great figure in uh, our legacy and in our heritage as your people, Lord, models for us, he wasn't a perfect man, but a man who was willing to trust you enough to make deep, uh, decisive sacrifices that, Lord, you continue to remind us of in Hebrews chapter 11. And I pray that we would be willing to follow in his example and his steps and to do our part to make choices and decisions that please and honor you. Bless this study, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So we're looking at today Moses, which happens to also be the first name of my father-in-law. And uh, one of the things that I enjoy uh, is when he's telling people his name. Uh, because I don't know, are there any other Moseses in the room? Any other Moses folks out there? Like, your, like me, my name also is not the most common name. And so usually there's then some follow-up conversation um, and I've watched people when he says his, you know, his name is Moses, and they usually have two reactions. One would be those who aren't really in the loop spiritually. They just find it a curiosity, and then he'll share maybe something about his background. But I love people who are believers, who it's almost like, ooh, Mr. Lead Us to the Promised Land has showed up, you know. <laughs> Where's your staff or whatever, you know. Uh, and so I find it ironic. We're studying on Moses today, and uh, I've become familiar uh, in, I call him Pop, but uh, his name is Moses and uh, all that goes with that. Can I just say this as we now pivot to a new section of the chapter, that Moses is going to be the first that really models for us the deep sacrifices that it takes to be a person of faith. Um, I think to this point in our study, and yes, Joseph had some sacrifices and Abraham and others that we have studied, but Moses models for us how deeply and decisively he had to choose God's way over what would have been self-serving. Because here's the thought today, our faith in God is not only confirming what we believe about God, it is also, listen to me, it's confronting a world who doesn't believe in God. And a world that disbelieves God is not going to get giddy and happy and fall all over themselves to hug you and celebrate when you choose to trust God and they're not. And some of the tension in our families and in our communities and even between churches and ministry-minded folks, so-called, is those choosing to trust God and those who are just claiming to believe in Him. And so I hope today as we work through this that God will stir in your heart where you need to go all in on siding with those who move in the direction we see Moses going. And so here we see Moses uh, really modeling how faith confronts opposition and hostility toward the one who chooses uh, to trust God. So here's the question, and we'll look at our study today. In a day of worldliness and even blending in by believers, how do we in contrast live principled lives of epic significance in the sight 
of an eternal God. How do we do that uh, with principled lives? Let's talk about two principled confrontations. So these would be things, if we live by principle, these principles are going to confront and cause certain challenges in our life that must be embraced. Number one, for a few minutes, let's talk about, first of all, the idea of principled choices. We are going to choose to live by uh, and upon principle. Um, I don't know if your sports career was like mine. I played different sports and tried my, took a stab at several of them. But I was never like the guy that the, the local newspaper was interviewing at practice about, you know, hey, how are you going to, you know, win another tournament or championship for your team? I was the guy keeping practice going while they were interviewing those guys, okay? I was what you call at times a, pin, a bench warmer. And I think if we're honest, not just in the sports realm, but in our walk with the Lord, many times we're sitting on the bench, not being used and blessed, and, and God's not moving through us, not because of what God has chosen, but because of what we have chosen. Um, and the other day I heard someone commenting on this, and those of us in the sports world, this would have an immediate application, but I think it applies to all of us in other areas. Someone said this, your coach doesn't determine your playing time. Your own choices do, your effort, your attitude, your work ethic, and more. Isn't that true? True. Yeah, talent. There's some factors of talent. But most of us, not just in sports, but in all areas of life, listen to me, we're choosing where we're living and how we're living and the impact of that life upon those around us. And so we need to make choices that are based upon principle. You and I are as close to God, I've said this many times, but also we're being used by God as much as we choose to be. Are we willing to own that today and then lean in where some choices need to be shifted or amended? Let me give you a few things under that there in your bulletin today that I think can help us get better at this thing called principled choices. Number one, be one who chooses to build upon the formative years orchestrated by God. Be one who chooses to build upon the formative years orchestrated by God. And so we're going to talk about Moses and some of the things that formed him and prepared him that he chose to build upon that foundation. Look at verse 23. I give you two of them. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hid three months of his parents. Notice, because they saw he was a proper child, here it is, and they were not afraid of the king's commandment. Number one, we see a formative fearlessness. Uh, Moses' parents were fearless parents. Um, they were willing to make the hard choice that led to a foundation upon which Moses could build. Now, back in Genesis chapter 15 and verse 13, God tells Abraham that his people are going to go down to Egypt for 400 years. And this 400 years is now winding down. Did, did Moses' parents know that that 400-year clock had almost run out? We don't know for sure. We don't know that they knew that Moses was going to lead the charge. They just didn't fear the king more than they feared God. And their fearlessness set the table for Moses to both live and thrive and to make a difference for uh, his God. And so they responded to this crisis of Pharaoh wanting to kill all male children by saying, we're not doing it. There was a fearlessness in them that was a blessing and benefit, obviously, to this man Moses. Now, the word proper that's found here has the idea of a beautiful or a, 
uh, a striking child. Now, every child is beautiful in the sight of their parents, right? Including when they run down front during worship time, right? Uh, I enjoyed that today. Some of you wish more of that would happen and less of this would happen. I know that, okay? Um, but, but every child is beautiful in the sight of a parent, but they recognize something striking about this child. In fact, it's interesting, that word is only used twice, uh, the Greek word, in the entire New Testament, once in Acts 7 and then here in Hebrews 11, both times it's used to refer to Moses. So there was something about Moses that, that was striking, and, and they saw that, and they sensed that, and they were willing to do the courageous thing when other parents were doing the fearful thing. Formative fearlessness. i um, show you a picture. Um, this was uh, an article in the news a few weeks ago. Heard of the Inca people? Um, the lady on the left here is doing some research, and then what's in the shrink wrap there to the right uh, are the remains of one of the children sacrificed, a human sacrifice to the Inca gods. And one of the things they came away from the study was that from the samples, the direct, I know it's a bit of a gross story, but there's a point to it here that's very convicting, that in the remains of this child, they found the remnants of a drug that had been used to drug the child before being sacrificed to their God, to dull the pain, to desensitize the mind and the body to what they were about to suffer. Listen to me today. It's only by God's grace that you and I didn't have, didn't have parents like these parents, right? Different era. But could we not have been born then and there? The fact we're here today is an absolute miracle. And much of that miracle is because of, yes, flawed parents, but parents that God used. And so Moses here is about to build on the foundation of something God had done in his life. Listen to me today. Your, per, your personal present tense existence did not happen in a vacuum. God did some things to bring you to this moment. Are you willing to steward that properly by choosing to build upon the foundation that precedes you? All right, number two, go to verse 24. By faith, Moses, when he was come to years, so now we have his choice, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. We see a second formative role or person in his existence. Number two, jot this down, a formative means. God used Pharaoh's daughter to be the means of his preservation. Remember, uh, Moses' mother puts him in the ark of bulrushes and puts him out into the river, and Pharaoh's daughter is bathing herself in the river, and she sees this basket and eventually adopts Moses as her own child. Key thought today, though, would be this. Why did God allow Pharaoh's daughter to discover Moses? Was it the end or was it the means? And here's the challenge in our lives. Sometimes in our past, yeah, we have some bad things that have happened to us, but we've also had some good things happen to us, some opportunities. And here's what we often do. We see that as the end of our existence. God's given me certain benefits. Heidi just read to me on the way back on the airplane, if you make over $50,000 a year, you are in the top 10% of all human beings on the planet right now. Anything north of 50 grand, you're in the top 10% of the world. We are wealthy people. Are we seeing that as the end of our existence to live with all of those blessings and benefits? Or is it the means to building a life of sacrifice and of service? The formative means. And so Moses here is adopted as Pharaoh's, son, uh, Pharaoh's daughter, her son. 
Uh, as far as we know from extra biblical records, it seems to be that the Pharaoh of this day didn't have a son who was prominently going to be the successor. It's possible that Moses uh, was in line for the throne of Egypt. And yet you see here him choosing to refuse to be called that and to be identified with that uh, in the long term. Uh, and so we see him choosing to give up that status for something greater. Think about what it meant for Moses to turn down the nobility. Uh, again, just because I just was around a setting where royalty and all that goes with that was being so celebrated. Imagine choosing to abdicate that. He chose to do so. Here, here's what one author said, the result of that choice. Instead of occupying a line or two of hieroglyphics on some obscure tomb, Moses is memorialized in God's eternal book. Instead of being found in a museum as an Egyptian mummy, he is one of the most famous men of God that ever lived. By that one choice, to not see the formative years as the end, he had arrived, but as a means to what God had put him on this planet to trust and to do. And so this formative means we see Moses being faithful to steward it properly. Um, I don't know if you've noticed that gas prices just keep going up. We were in New York City. We fl- I don't know if you've noticed that or not. Um, but uh, we were in New York City, and there were places it was over over seven dollars a gallon. Um, and in driving, it just it, it is it is it is uh, it's crazy, with no end in sight. And somebody mentioned this, which I think is a good perspective, especially for those of us that maybe aren't in this setting. Uh, May uh, the number for May had eight percent. Uh, 8.6% inflation rate. That's the highest in 40 years, and the numbers just keep going up. It, it is mind-boggling. But one author said this. I just saw this the other day. He said, we need to watch out for our neighbors, especially the elderly who are on fixed incomes. And I don't know if you've thought of that or not, but that's something we need to, as the body of Christ, be considerate of. Those in the room that that applies to. You're retired and maybe have uh, other restrictions that hinder you from just getting a fourth job to pay for the, the gas, you know, that you need to get to the third job or whatever the case may be. But, but there are those struggles. And so what we're about to study of Moses sacrificing, that's not the vein of thought, but we need to be thinking of who are we depending upon uh, to meet our needs? Who are we depending upon to provide for what we even worry about and, and, and desperately need uh, to be provided? And here's where I would encourage you to think, this train of thought. Until we see everything and everyone in this life as a means that God is using instead of the end game, we cannot live free from worrying about those things. The way to get free of our, not just our wants, but our needs, worrying and fretting about those, is to just trust God. Has He not taken care of us to this point? Some of you have been through some very rough patches in our nation's history, local history, your own personal history. God has taken care of us all the way till right in this moment. Don't you think he's got it the rest of the way? And so let, let those formative years build in you a resiliency to trust God even when things get tight and tough and hard in our walk before him. Being both born a Jewish boy and then raised in Pharaoh's court, listen to me, both of those things prepared Moses to be a unique leader that no one else in Israel could be. Those formative years were orchestrated by God who is sovereign. What in your formative years, here's the question of application before we move on, what in your formative years is outside of your control and therefore providentially assigned to you by God? Are you underappreciating it? 
Are you resenting it? Are you getting stuck thinking about it and, and chafing about it instead of carefully stewarding what God has chosen to be a part of your past? All of what's happened to you has prepared you for this moment. Would you trust God enough to believe that he truly does work all things out together for good to them that love God, to those who are called according to his purpose? All right, go back if you will now to our text to verse 25. And we see a second choice that we must make if we're going to be people like Moses who live epic lives by simply trusting the Lord. Look at verse 25. Choosing, rather, here's now the choice that he's made, to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Number two, jot this down. Be one who chooses to disassociate from worldly perks independent from God. Be one who chooses to disassociate from worldly perks that are independent from God. Uh, while we were in London, my brother, who is serving there as a church planner, tried to get us to, uh, got us to try new things, different menu things. They have tea like every half hour, you know, and, and I'm like so bloated by tea right now. <laughs> Uh, just uh, Heidi and I like, we like it. They take breaks regularly. They're very good at resting and renewing and all that goes with that. But one of the things that they got us to try, I've heard of this. Have you heard of this? It's called Marmite. Marmite, just, it's spelled just like it sounds. It is actually a yeast extract. This really sounds good, okay? It's real dark, and they usually have it like by their jams and jellies and butters. And he got me a little biscuit that looks more like a uh, maybe an English muffin a little bit would be the profile, put some on. He said, try this. He just, and I'm like, you know, it's in front of other people. You can't say, ooh, that looks gross. So I took a big, took a big bite of it. It's the nastiest thing I think I've ever eaten. I'm, I'm not kidding you. I'm still drinking tea, trying to get rid of that taste, you know, in my mouth. Um, but I tried it, okay? So I can say that I did that. Have you ever, as you age, you start opting out of things, or maybe you keep things that you ate as a child, um, and you would never admit it to someone else. Maybe it's a certain cereal or I don't know, whatever the snack is. Um, one of the things I find humorous are wing, uh, boneless wings, all right? So if you go to a restaurant that serves wings, um, I don't know if that's you or not. I like the bone-in typically, but sometimes I'll cheat on that as well. But someone said this, boneless wings are basically to help adults feel better about ordering chicken nuggets, okay? For you to feel better or more mature about that. Um, do you know as it relates to immaturity, spiritual immaturity, we often excuse that. We, 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 we tolerate that without realizing how it hinders our relationship with God and our usability by Him. We need to be growing. And we see Moses now leaning into these choices and choosing to not take the shortcut or the easy way out uh, in God's will. Two things I would give you under that. Number one, we see he chose to let go of worldly pleasure. Did you see that in verse 25? Go back there. He says, choosing rather to suffer affliction than to enjoy the pleasures of sin. And so he chooses to opt out of this, this perk or this, uh, if you will, this, this uh, kickback benefit of following the world, which was pleasure independently of God. Moses chose to identify with ill treatment and affliction that went with associating with Israel over all the pleasures that, Israel, that Egypt offered uh, to him. Um, is not the struggle often in our lives feeling good or living an epic life? Um, one of the reasons I see us settling for less than everything God wants us to do and be is because we just want to feel good. 
Isn't that a struggle for you? I want to do what's comfortable. I want to do what's familiar. I want to do what is acceptable to others around me. Brethren, we're not living lives of significance because we're not willing to be uncomfortable. We're not willing to, to let go of the pleasures, the fleeting pleasures of this life. We're chasing after them, every mirage and every promise that the world offers of pleasure at the expense of living a life of faith. And here's why we do that, because what the world offers to us is front-loaded with all the perks, right? Have you noticed that? The wrong decision tends to be the funnest at the very beginning, and the right decision tends to be front-loaded with the sacrifices. Listen to me, that's why we need faith. Faith to believe the wrong choice is going to lead to some very dire consequences. And we need faith to believe, yeah, it hurts and it's uncomfortable and people don't understand it and accept it right now, but someday this is going to pay off. And so faith allows us and enables us to make the same choice that Moses did. Number two, verse 26, not only did he choose to let go of the pleasure, notice this in verse 26, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he had respect on the recompense of the reward. So he let go of worldly pleasure. Number two, worldly treasures. Worldly treasures, not just the pleasure, but also the treasure. And if we're not careful, you and I, with all the stuff that we have, we just keep amassing, and we have more than we think we have, can't see God and can't see His will for us because we're so distracted by what we have. And there are two aspects of that. One would be the stuff that we have, and number two, the debt we've incurred getting all that stuff. And it, it closes our heart and our life up to be able to freely follow this God who wants us to walk by faith and not by sight. Now, when you read in verse 26 that he esteemed the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, we just read the treasures in Egypt and we keep going. Do you know what that means? That Moses was in line likely to inherit control of not just the power, but the treasures that were stored underneath of the most powerful kingdom in, in its day. It ruled and reigned the world. It was constantly bringing in treasure from all over the planet of tribute and, 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 and treaty. And, and so all of this treasure, Moses looked past all of that to focus on what God wanted him to believe in. And so faith enabled Moses to look past the pleasure and also look past the treasure to see God and to follow his will uh, for his life. Now, can I ask you a question today? One minute after Moses died, do you think he ever regret, he's ever regretted that decision since? Like we all know it, don't we? We all know it. One second, one minute after this life is done, all the treasure and pleasure this world offers will not matter at all. And everything we've lived for that relates to God and our faith in Him will only grow in how we appreciate and experience. And so Moses here makes the faith-filled and the wise decision. Now, did you notice at the beginning of verse 26, it says, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches. Isn't that interesting? Moses esteemed or valued, when he put it on the scale, the reproaches of Christ. What's the writer of Hebrews saying there? Obviously, the, the theme of Hebrews is that Christ is superior to the, the Levitical priesthood, and Jesus is the high priest after the order of Melchizedek. He's saying here that Moses, in some way, his choice was fueled by faith in the coming Messiah. Don't read past that. 
He chose long before Christ came to associate with Christ, the Messiah who would suffer. There was a faith-filled perspective that fueled this choice. The Messiah, by the way, who would come through what people? Not the Egyptians, through the Israelites, through the Jewish people. And so this choice was a choice of great faith. You and I today, may I remind you, our motivation for living a significant life must be otherworldly. It must be for and sustained by uh, a motivation from something outside of this world, or we will settle for less than an epic life. If I say to you, why are you doing what you're doing? Why are you living for what you're living for? Something got us out of bed this morning. If it's not for something outside of this world, we will settle for less than the life God has called us to. The people I sense that are living lives that are making an impact, it's not about the here and now. It's about the then and the there. It's about the God that's outside of this present time in existence. That must fuel our faith. That must cause us to live lives of epic significance. I was reading an excerpt from a book called The Paradox of Choices because I think we like to keep our options open. This is a huge issue, not just in the world, but also in we as, unfortunately, God's people. In the book, Paradox of Choices, the psychologist Barry Swartz explains why we, trouble com- uh, why we have trouble committing, why we love to keep our options open. He observes that as a culture, we demand choice, we demand options. We've talked about the cereal aisle and the list goes on. We love our options. We imagine more options means more freedom. The irony, Schwartz writes, is that this apparently limitless choice does not actually make us happy. The number of choices available to us become overwhelming and actually make it difficult for us to ever have the joy of fully committing to anything or anyone. Even when we do commit, we often feel dissatisfied with the choice that we've made. Now listen to these words. We worship the God of open options, and he's killing us. He kills our relationships because he tells us it's better not to become too involved. He kills our service to others because he tells us it might be better to keep our weekends to ourselves. He kills our giving because he tells us that there's an uncertain finan- these are uncertain financial times and you never know when you might need that money. He kills our joy in Christ because he tells us it's better not to be thought of as too spiritual. And then here's his admonition. Choose the God of infinite possibility who chose to limit himself to a particular time, a particular place, and a particular people. Choose the God who closed off all other alternatives so that he could pursue for himself one bride. Choose God who chose not to come down from the cross until she was one. And we, who benefit from that choice, like to keep our options open. Can I encourage you, choose him. You want to live a life that matters? Just choose God. Go all in on Him. And that alone positions you and me to live a life of epic significance. All right, go back to our text now, if you will, to verse 27. And we see a second aspect of a principled life that confronted the world and caused Moses to often experience grief and challenges, and yet he's commended here by God. Look at verse 27. By faith he, the same man Moses, forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Number two, there are principal directions that we must set. So we have choices we make. Am I going to do this or am I going to do this? And then we have also what are principal directions. I'm going to go in the same direction for a long time. Um, long obedience, as one pastor said, in the same direction. 
is what leads to a life of significance. So it's not just our in-the-moment choices. It's where am I headed? What's the direction? What's the trajectory of my life? Is it one of faith or of selfishness? Um, The other day, a lady shared this with me. She had asked her husband to dry the dishes. Have you ever run into the buzzsaw that goes with asking your husband to do something, ladies? Um, And this was his response when she came home. Drying the dishes. She came home and there's the oscillating fan in front of the dishes. Um, So guys, sorry, I just blew whatever your plan was for the next time you get asked that. Um, Do you know that all of us are moving things in a direction? All of us are blowing in a direction? And here's what often we do. We blame the wind. We blame the circumstances of life instead of my attitude and my heart and my mind, where I'm headed is largely my responsibility. Listen, as we just said, we choose where to look. We choose where to head. The direction of your life, listen to me, because you have the Spirit of God in you. If you know Jesus and you have His Word that gives you direction, you've chosen what direction you're headed. Toward bitterness and disillusionment, toward laziness and apathy and selfishness, or all the positive things that are going on in your life. We must live with principled directions. And so Moses not only stayed in Egypt and made the choices he made, then, listen to me, He chose to leave Egypt. He left behind him all the sophisticated culture and nuances of every kind of pleasure and treasure you can think of. He turned his back on that and walked out in the wilderness. He chose that direction of faith. All right, a couple things about that as we finish. Number one, you and I need to be the one who directs our life away from the power brokers that are at odds with God. We must be one who chooses to direct our life away from the power brokers or the influencers that are at odds with God. Um, As I mentioned, we were in London uh, last week and several days we went downtown with my brother being our tour guide. We stayed with him and he had the whole trip pretty well planned out. And the one day we were not in London was the day they celebrated the big hubbub about the Queen's Jubilee. And the place was packed and we watched it on the news that night. But it was interesting to me as they were celebrating and, and just fawning over the queen was people from all over the world came. You'd see the Union Jack being held by a Mexican or uh, someone from South America and, and just the love and the, the adoration that they have for this woman and her influence uh, around the world. What was funny too is ever you, where you went, all of the, especially for us tourists, they were marketing it. You know, here's the Queen Jubilee pastry and here's a special tea blend in the honor of Her Majesty and just trying to sell it. And we came back with a few trinkets uh, of that nature, but just trying to push uh, her and her reign and her influence uh, in uh, the United Kingdom. Do you know that Moses, when he turned his back on Egypt, he didn't just turn his back on it is a culture in general. He turned his back on the king of Egypt. He turned his back on Pharaoh. Um, and all of the consequences that likely, humanly speaking, would be directed his way. Are we willing to do the same? I see in our day us trying to use politicians and those who have power. We look to them instead of looking to God. Now, I'm not saying we don't pray and vote, but let's be honest. How's that working out for you? Those of us who have at times fallen into that. Our, our, our faith has to be in someone greater than that. And before we can trust God, we have to turn our back on those who promise power and our agenda to be advanced and even our, our, our honorable agenda. We must ultimately look uh, to the Lord. What are a couple of things Moses turned his back on? Number one, powerful anger. 
But you see that he, like his parents, he did not fear the wrath of the king. He turned his back on not just anger, but powerful anger on the part of Pharaoh. Moses renounced Egypt's monarch, not necessarily a smart thing to do physically or politically, and his faith, excuse me, it emboldened him to make an exit from the land of bondage. Careless or flippant, if you will, is the language here of the wrath of the king. And Moses here makes a clear break from the politics of this world. He feared Pharaoh so little because he feared God so much. Uh, So may I encourage you today to live in that vein of thought. Turn your back, turn your direction away from the powerful anger in our world and direct it toward the Lord. And you notice that he continued in that. It was a persevering mindset that Moses personifies. Um, I've noticed with those in power, I don't know if if you have or not, but if you resist them or even you ignore them, they threaten you, don't they? So they'll love you if you embrace them, and if you turn on them, they then start threatening you with that same power that they promised you. Faith-filled believers see through the facade of that threat. Those in power, most of their power is both secured and sustained more by the shadow of what they threaten than the substance of what they actually can wield. And so faith has a persevering aspect. And so we have to see through that and see uh, and be steadfast in the face of it. And if we do so long enough, God will prove he is king and ultimately they are not. Our faith must be in him. All right, go down to verse 29. We'll come back to verse 28 in our conclusion today. But look at verse 29. By faith, they, those now who are following Moses, several years have obviously transpired here, They passed through the Red Sea as by dry land. Here it is, which the Egyptians are saying or intending to do uh, like the Israelites were drowned. Number two, Moses turned his back on the powerful weapons, the powerful weapons uh, of Egypt. So not only was the Pharaoh one who could get angry at him, he was also the one who could could wield great power and weapons against him. And later on, as is referenced here, Moses now comes back. He flees. Remember the backside of the desert? He comes back to Egypt. The ten plagues are performed. And eventually, after God says, let my people go, Pharaoh eventually on his knees, forced to do so, he lets them run. And then what happens? He regrets it. And so he goes after uh, Moses and those following him, and they're pinned up against the Red Sea. And yet God told them to step into the sea. And as they step into the sea, it parts And they basically go through the the Red Sea with these walls of water on either side. And then what happens? You have the Egyptians with their big, flashy, fast chariots who try to do the same. And it led to their demise. And so God dealt with the anger. God dealt with the weapons and the resources of this world that was against Moses. Moses simply had to raise the rod, trust God, and lead where God had led first him. And so may we be willing to reject the weaponized power of the world and simply follow God who leads us. One of the neatest pictures I got, we were walking uh, through London, and uh, you can see the right there, Big Ben, uh, and uh, they had just redone it. I think spent, uh, uh, let me think, I think it was $40 million to renovate Big Ben. And it's got a lot of new like gold leaf embossment at the top that it didn't used to have. Um, my parents were there back in the fall, and they had it all, there was scaffolding, so they couldn't see much of it, but most of it was done when we were there. And then off the left, you see a few buildings, but do you, can you recognize the outline of the statue there? Can you tell who that is? Kind of, it's a man stooped over with a cane. Who is it? 
Winston Churchill. Um, and I just thought that was a neat perspective. This man who, even in his, his elderly age, several times stood uh, for right and stood against evil that was going on around him. And we went to some war rooms underneath of London where he would have been in a bunker and made all the decisions that we still benefit from. But his willingness to stand up against the evil of his day. We today are the beneficiaries of that. That's an epic life. Here's what we want. We want the epic life with the statue without having to stand up against the powers of our day. And I'm just telling you, you can't have it both ways, folks. I'm preaching it myself when I say that. Are we willing to stand against the weapons and the anger of those who rule in our day independently of God and say, we're going to trust God no matter what you do or say? Um, that's the mindset we need more of in our ranks today. To see the epic power of God, we must first dare to stand up against the inferior powers of this present world. We all want the divine power to be manifested. We have to first choose to stand against that which is evil. Where does that apply in your little realm of influence and mine as well? All right, let's end in verse 28. Through faith prior to the Red Sea and its circumstances. Notice Moses, he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood. This is interesting. We're talking of this as we'll have our Lord's Supper tonight. Strongly encouraged to be back for that at 5.30. The sprinkling of blood, lest he that destroyed the firstborn should touch them. Lastly, number two, jot this down. Be one who directs your life away from religion outside of God. Be one who directs your life away from religion that is outside of God. Uh, 2 Timothy 3 talks about that perilous times will come in the last days, and it lists different things. At the end of that section in verse 5, it says this, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. From such turn away. God free us from empty religion. God, free us from religion that's divorced from the God who has instituted this thing called a relationship between himself and man. And so Moses turns his back on the false religion of the land. Notice two things about that. <laughs> Excuse me. First of all, religious distinction. Notice in verse 28, through faith he kept the Passover and sprinkling of blood. So we see a, a distinction from the faith and religions of Egypt. By instituting the Passover and by sprinkling the blood of lambs, sheep were, were looked down upon by the Egyptians. We see that reference several times in Scripture. He separated himself forever, emphatically, from Egyptian idolatry. We don't know what kind of things it, uh, Moses had been exposed to as a young person, but I would guess that his Egyptian upbringing also involved some idolatry. And Moses here chooses to go with Jehovah God over all the false gods and all the things they claim to deliver on. He turned his back on all of that and put his faith in God who had directed him to inaugurate the Passover. Uh, and so we see him willing to trust in the blood of a lamb, not the waters of the Nile as the Egyptians would have done. Can you imagine as the blood was being put on the doorpost and the mantle of every house, how the Egyptians must have mocked? Not just the Israelites, but Moses. A bunch of fools, what are you doing? And the next morning, they realized that the faith had been put in the right God. And so he was willing to be religiously distinctive. We live in a day where religion often is just the lowest common denominator. What, if we just pulled the room even today, what do we, what's the one thing we all agree on? Let's all settle to that level. 
Uh, What about just following God on his terms? Letting him be the foundation of our faith. Letting his word and his spirit be what guides us. And so we see Moses willing to turn his back and to be different, to be distinct, to come out and be separate, uh, saith the Lord. Uh, I think the move on Moses' part permanently associated him not with the king of Egypt, but with the God who is king, the Jesus who is king. He associated with that follower or that leader. All right, lastly, verse 28, notice the end of verse, lest he that destroyed the firstborn should touch them. Number two, religious deliverance. So Moses believed and followed a religion that was distinctive. Number two, it was a religion that actually delivered on its promises. In keeping the Passover, it led to the the deliverance of the firstborn of every Jewish household who followed God's leadership in their life. They trusted him and God delivered. Um, Somebody the other day sent this to me. I think it's a great thought. I don't don't know if sometimes you realize how much you impact the world and how much I impact the world in just our little ways. And one of my cousins sent this to me. She said, it was a quote she came across, I love people who have no idea how wonderful they are and just wander around making the world a better place. Have you ever met somebody like that? They just walk into a coffee shop and they're just a breath of fresh air and they're oblivious to the impact they have. Um, they're in your family, they're in your neighborhood, they just, they make a difference, they, they provide something that makes the world a better place. Can I tell you that only our faith and religion in the sense of James 1, a pure religion, undefiled religion, our religion is the only one that makes a difference, at least a positive one. It actually saves people, it actually transforms lives. And the empty husk of religion and the, the empty godlessness, the form of godliness without the power in, in Egypt couldn't do much for the Egyptians. I love even the few miracles that the Egyptian magicians could do. Instead of, all it did was add more to the plague. You know, okay, thanks. We have that. We have lice. Good. You added some more. That's so helpful. Okay. And so the things that religion adds just compound our issues at best, right? God frees us. God delivers us. God protects us, and not just our firstborn, but all of those who are born into our life. And this religion we have, and we trust God, it makes an eternal difference. And so because our religion and our faith is epic, what we believe in should not, then we put our full faith in it. That's what unleashes the power of God in our lives. Matthew 7, 7 challenges us where we have slipped into Uh, empty religiosity. Christ says unto them, well has Isaiah prophesied of you hypocrites, as it is written, the people honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. How be it in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. And so we must be careful not to accept the empty formalism or ritualism that those who claim to follow Moses later in Jesus' ministry, and yet they were not experiencing the power and the personal relationship with the Lord. Um, just a question here today, and I hope that you process this, the spirit of it. Maybe our church or others that you've been in make you nervous when they don't follow all of the traditions that you're used to and that you're comfortable with. And I just want to challenge you with this. Faith that follows God has to, at times, let go of things that used to be the standard, maybe even where it was a conviction or at least a a point of deep abiding faith and confidence 
Am I saying we should remove the ancient landmarks without at least asking why they're there? No, of course. A friend of mine said this the other day. I think it's important. Occasionally, ministry leaders change. Why do they? Or ministries change. Here was his answer. The traditions of men have a difficult time standing up under the weight of biblical study. And I think some of us, where our life of faith is hindered is, listen to me, we even kind of know we're not really on good footing on something, but we just, we like it. It's comfortable. It's convenient. It keeps us in a certain crowd or circle. And we're not trusting God enough to follow him in that area. So may we be willing to let God free us, not just from the Egyptian doctrines, but the ones that creep in, as Christ mentions in Matthew chapter 7, where we're teaching for commandments of God what are only traditions of men. And so lives that are lived with epic faith are free of those tendencies. At some point, you and I must choose between religion that is aligned with God or this world, not just the hedonist, but also the traditionalist. Where are you straddling the fence? Where do you need to go all in on worshiping and serving and following God based upon his word alone? All right, let's end in Hebrews 12. We were in Hebrews 11. Go over a page, if you will, or over a chapter, if you would, a chapter 12. And let's end with these first three verses of this chapter. Before we read them, I don't know that we appreciate how much this book helps our faith. You know, it's, it's where we hear about the gospel, right? And then we put our faith in Jesus Christ. Faith comes by hearing the word. Romans 10 is clear on that. But this book and what it reveals to us is the only way we can do what we see Moses doing. It fuels our faith. It sustains our faith. It grows our faith. Um, an author I was reading said this, today your English Bible, in your English Bible, you will find roughly 750,000 words. 750,000 words from someone who doesn't owe you any. 750,000 words from a person, listen to me, that doesn't owe you one word. And we say we don't want to trust him. He's not worthy of our faith. This God who has such a specific, personal, direct agenda for our life. May we be willing to change our thinking on that. All right, look here in Hebrews 12, verse 1. Wherefore, seeing we are compassed about... With so great a cloud of witnesses. Who's that referring to? Well, I mean, we're reading about them. The previous chapter, chapter 11. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. How do we do that? Verse 2, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of, of the throne of God. And then here it is, verse 3, For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your, what's the last word? Minds. In your minds. Often our issue with faith and not having the faith God wants really isn't a heart issue. I know what the heart man believes. But it begins here. It's how we think. Um, I think it was Tozer that said, I forget, no, it wasn't Tozer. Somebody said, what defines us is what we think about God. When we think of God, what do you think of? That's who you are, and that's who you're becoming, and that's whether you're going to live a life of significance or not. And so our mind often is what sets us up for failure. So we need principled minds. We need principles that come from God's Word and that sustain our ministry uh, for the Lord. 
All right, let's end today, as I think these men can say it better than me. This is just a few pictures of the pastors um, that I met. So the man in the middle, he's actually a Filipino and just a wee bit shorter than my brother and I, but sweet man, and he's actually taking over the church in Downham, uh, which is a thriving church, 35, 40 people, which in, in Europe is like a mega church, okay? Uh, they were referencing a mega church in London, and I said, well, how big? I said, 200. Like, I would just drop, you know, it'd be like our church, basically, or a little bit bigger, that we're a mega church in that area. So this man's taking over the church. His name is Ricardo, sweet man. And uh, we were asking him, are you excited about pastoring the church? He's like, yeah, I'm also scared to death, you know, and he was just sharing as he's processing that, he and his wife. This is, uh, on the right is James um, Wilson. He pastored the church in Northern Ireland in Derry, uh, Ireland, a massive city uh, there uh, right on the, the edge of Ireland, the Republic of Ireland, Northern Ireland. Uh, in fact, the, the door behind him is to their church building that we would have got, given some monies to back when they purchased that building. It was just neat to walk in on a Tuesday night and see a group of people there having Bible study midweek um, in a building that we had a part in. And obviously my brother was there, helped start the church. And now James, uh, who is from that area, he just has such a heart for the Lord. And then here's the last, and th- this is where the faith part comes in. So he took us up on a wall uh, Derry was actually um, uh, was taken over by Elizabeth I, and she changed the name to Londonderry. The locals don't like it to be called that. It's just Derry. But she built this massive wall around the interior part of the city, and we're standing on that city, city wall, and he's showing us off to the right all of the Catholic area. There's a real tension between the Protestants and the Catholics uh, in this city. And there are hundreds of thousands of people in that area, and we're just praying over it. And listening to him with his brogue, his, his Irish accent, pray for his people. God, do a miracle here. Reach this area. Just to feel his faith, to sense his faith, to hear his faith. Now, there are some that would say Ricardo and James and others like him are wasting their lives. That's not a fast track to prosperity and profile in, in the UK, all right? To pastor an independent uh, church. But he has a heart for that. And I'm telling you, that matters to God. When we were praying, God heard and God's working and he was sharing how God is working. Every life that trusts God enough to turn your back on what the world offers and to go in the direction God is going, it matters. Because if it matters to God, then listen, it matters. Who cares what others say about you and me? May we be faithful to trust uh, the Lord. So here's the question as we finish today. Will you allow God to take your life and to breathe into it epic significance through your principled choices and your principled directions. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word today.